Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. In the NOCO is supported by Blue Federal Credit Union, with locations from Denver to Cheyenne, helping members tap into the power of community. More information at bluefcu.com. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, a new bill would make it easier for cities to adopt ranked choice voting for certain elections. They say it gives voters more say on all the candidates. And they also say that it shows which candidates have broad support. More on that. Plus, we explore the impact of this weekend's winter storm on Colorado snowpack. And we look at ethical concerns about cloning as a way to save endangered species. That and more coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Henry Zimmerman. And I'm Erin O'Toole. Forecasters say this weekend's massive winter storm is one for the record books, with widespread snow totals only seen every five to ten years. Zach Hyris with the National Weather Service in Boulder said Denver's snow totals from the storm measured more than two feet, making it the fourth largest storm on record going back to the late 1800s. Early measurements show Fort Collins received between 20 and 30 inches and Greeley around 17 to 18 inches. And not only did we get a lot of it, the snow that we got was especially heavy and wet. Not really good news for tree branches or shovelers, but it might be good news for Colorado's drought. That, of course, is something that climate officials in the state are keeping a watchful eye on. Joining us to explain how the recent snowfall plays into some of these drought issues is Luke Runyon, who reports on the Colorado River Basin and water for KUNC. Hey, Luke. Hi, Henry. There was a lot of buildup to this storm. We knew it was coming over the weekend. It didn't quite materialize as quickly as we anticipated. But in the end, it seems like the storm truly delivered. Let's start with the snowpack. What does this big storm mean for that snowpack in our region? This storm absolutely delivered, uh, especially for the northern Front Range and the northeastern plains. I talked with Colorado's assistant state climatologist, Becky Bollinger, and she said forecasters knew this was going to be a really wet storm. They just didn't know exactly when it was going to arrive. So people had been told to prepare for a big weekend storm. And on Saturday morning, it still hadn't really arrived. People were um, expecting it all week. And so as soon as the week ended, I think they're like, where is it? And um, it did slow down a bit. But when it got here, it did exactly what we were expecting it to do. The bullseye, so to speak, for this storm was right over Larimer County, where snow totals in the foothills went past 40 inches. Bollinger says this one storm alone makes it much more likely that both the South Platte and the Arkansas River basins will end this season with an average snowpack. Now let's turn over to drought. Where is the state at and how far will this weekend's snowfall go toward making up some of these water deficits? The drought picture in Colorado has been pretty dire since late last summer. I don't think I have to remind anyone about the fires that burned through the region. Uh, Almost 90% of the state is currently in severe drought, with some places even worse. And there are a few factors that go into making a drought. It's not just a lack of precipitation. An important factor is soil moisture, just how dry the ground is. And this added snowfall is going to make up some of the existing deficits in the soil, especially on the Front Range and on the Northern Plains. 
but it's important to distinguish between drought improvement and drought elimination. I haven't heard anyone yet say that this storm is going to wipe away drought conditions completely in any part of Colorado, just make them better. Fill us in on how the storm affected the western slope. Did they get as much snowfall as we did over here on the Front Range? No, this turned out to be just about an average snowstorm for the western slope. The the snow totals aren't nearly as impressive over on the western slope, and that's unfortunate for a couple reasons. One is that the west slope is really experiencing the drought way worse than the eastern half of the state. It's just a lot drier there. Two is the western slope acts as a really important drinking and irrigation water supply, not just for the communities on the western slope, but for the whole state, because several utilities draw water from the headwaters of rivers on the other side of the Continental Divide and draw it over to the Front Range. So obviously you can't control where and when a really epic snowstorm is going to go, but I saw a lot of people on the western slope saying they wish the storm had tracked just slightly more to the west than it did. Help us understand here, Luke, how does all of this snow translate into water that is relevant to farmers and and so on? You hear a lot about this 10 to 1 ratio, and that means that for every 10 inches of snow, it'll turn into one inch of liquid water. That can fluctuate. Those storms that drop much fluffier snow in the early winter months, the snow holds less moisture. These March snowstorms, though, can pack a punch because the snow is just so much more saturated. I think we in the media sometimes get so focused on the snow totals, but the water managers and farmers are way more interested in moisture content. This storm is likely to bring two to three inches of liquid water to parts of the front range. Other places could approach four to five inches. And that might not sound like a whole lot, but when you're in a drought, one storm that brings that much water is huge. To put it in context, Becky Bollinger brought up the city of Burlington on the Eastern Plains and how it got about three inches of liquid water just from this storm. And their entire average precipitation for November through March is 2.78 inches. So they got more in three days than they would typically get November through March. There were, of course, negative effects with the storm, as with any storm, right? Power outages, tree damage, people being stuck in their homes. But overall, as it relates to the drought, it seems like there's a lot to be happy about here. Yeah, if you're a front-range water manager who was staring down the potential for water restrictions this year, or a farmer who's planning what to grow, or just someone who likes uh, when the foothills do that beautiful green up in the spring, this storm gives a bit more certainty about what this upcoming spring might look like. But we're not out of the woods yet. Those soil moisture deficits are still there, and it'll take sustained precipitation and some cooler temperatures uh, to get us fully out of this drought. KUNC's Luke Runyon reports on water and drought. You can find his reporting at our website, KUNC.org. Thanks as always, Luke. You're welcome. New legislation at the state capitol would make it easier for cities to adopt ranked choice voting. If passed, it wouldn't change the way Coloradans cast their ballots for president or Congress. It would be used to decide nonpartisan races in cities and towns. Currently, only four cities in Colorado use ranked choice voting, but Democratic lawmakers want to at least expand the option. Here to explain more about House Bill 1071 and what it would do is T. Vo, who covers politics for the Colorado Sun. T, welcome to Colorado Edition. Hi, thanks, Aaron. So can you 
just briefly explain, and I know it's a little complicated, but can you explain a little bit about how ranked choice voting works and why its proponents like it so much? So under our current system, people cast a vote for one candidate and the person with the most votes wins. And if there are a lot of candidates, that might mean that the winner only gets 30 or 40 percent of the vote, or you might have to have a runoff to decide who the winner will be, which can be expensive. Under ranked choice voting, voters rank all the candidates in order of their preference. So, you know, there's four candidates, one, two, three, four, and then the votes are tallied up based on each voter's first choice. And if a candidate gets a majority right off the bat, they just win outright. But if no candidate gets a majority, the contenders with the fewest votes get eliminated in rounds, with their votes redistributed to the next highest ranked candidate on a voter's ballot. So you don't have to come back for a second time for a runoff. Exactly. So advocates also call this instant runoff voting. And they say it gives voters more say on all the candidates. So if you, you know, like more than one candidate, you can just decide who's number one and then give everyone else a different place in your preference. They also say that it shows which candidates have broad support. So even though not every voter would have picked this person as number one, maybe they're still high up on their ranking. And it also means you don't have to hold expensive runoffs. Another big benefit that they point to is that it eliminates the spoiler effect of a fringe candidate or a third party candidate drawing away votes from a majority party. And that's just because, you know, if a candidate doesn't get enough votes, then they get eliminated. Colorado municipalities already can use it. You rate that only four of them do right now. What are the barriers to running elections this way? Most cities and towns don't run their own elections. They consolidate their elections so that everything appears on one county ballot. But right now, the state doesn't have any software that can count ballots that use ranked choice voting or audit elections that use this method. So if towns and cities want to do this, they have to handle it themselves. That might mean counting ballots manually or buying the software themselves. And that can be really expensive, especially because Colorado has this cutting edge election auditing system. So there's technically not really software out there that does this already. You know, the good news is under this bill, the Secretary of State would essentially take on all that burden by developing all the standards and software so that cities that want to use ranked choice voting can still consolidate their elections with the county. And so what that means is they'll have all the software that can count the votes properly, they can audit it properly, and it can still appear on a ballot alongside all the other elections in the county that use a different voting method. So cities don't have to pay for the extra costs of printing a separate page. And it just it kind of cuts a lot of the logistical difficulties out. You mentioned that a lot of this work would fall to the Secretary of State's office. What is their position on this bill? They're neutral on it. That means, you know, they just haven't taken a position. The Secretary of State has said they support alternative voting methods, but they're just concerned about the cost. So far, the estimated cost is about $1 million over three years, and that's almost entirely cost um, to develop and upgrade software to do all of this. The good news is 62 of 64 Colorado counties use Dominion's voting system, which um, already has the capacity to count and accommodate ranked choice voting elections. So, you know, the state can pretty much upgrade the software for most counties in the state. And then the remaining two counties that don't use that software, they're not required to participate if they don't want to. And really the whole bill is optional. It just opens up the opportunity to use this, but no one's really forced to do anything. The cost is a a bit of a concern. Where would that money come from? The Secretary of State's office is self-funded. You know, rather than getting all their money from tax revenue sent by the legislature every year, 
they get their money from fees charged to businesses and nonprofits. So, you know, right now it's hard to say how much is in the is going to be in the agency's cash fund, but assuming that the office has to raise all the money to pay for this bill, the bill's sponsor estimates it would cost about a buck 25 in new fees to businesses. So, the bill sponsors argue that's nominal, but the Secretary of State has raised concerns about having to raise fees to fund it and, you know, depending on what other needs the agency has or whether there are new bills out of the legislature that could also impact the fund, that fee increase could end up being higher. Other than the cost of implementing this system, um, what are some of the concerns over the bill? I know you talked to some lawmakers and and others. Yeah. So from a pure financial perspective, um, some Republicans say they don't want to raise any fees on businesses in the middle of a pandemic, even if it's a pretty nominal fee. And then just with all the other financial priorities the state has this year, they say this just isn't the right year to talk about it. The bill also has a lot of support from voter groups, but the County Clerks Association, that's the group that represents all 64 county clerk reporters, has concerns that some of the purported benefits of ranked choice voting won't be as big as proponents say. And because there are so few jurisdictions, there's some, you know, 20 cities that use this method nationwide you know, it's, there's a kind of a limited pool of data. So they're worried that, you know, some of those benefits won't materialize and it won't outweigh the cost of voter confusion from people who just don't understand all the changes and how this new system works. And and then they also have concerns about the cost for cities, because one of the things that cities do have to pay for under the bill is a voter education campaign to make sure people understand how it works. I know it's always hard to crystal ball these things, but what are, what are, this bill's chances of becoming law. That remains to be seen. Uh, There's no bipartisan support for the bill so far. None of the Republicans in the legislature have come out for it. So it still has a couple hurdles to clear in the legislature. So I think that um, is very much an open question. TiVo is a reporter for the Colorado Sun. You'll find a link to this story at our website, KUNC.org. And T, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much, Erin. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. Scientists have successfully cloned a U.S. endangered species for the first time, a black-footed ferret now living at a research facility in Fort Collins. The ferret, named Elizabeth Ann, is a genetic copy of a ferret who died in 1988. Its remains were frozen in the early days of DNA technology. Some experts say the breakthrough, which is a collaboration between biotechnology nonprofit Revive and Restore and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, sets the stage for saving other endangered species. Others, though, have raised ethical concerns about the practice and the ferret's shrinking natural habitat. Brandon Keim is is a freelance nature and science journalist based in Maine who's written for publications like the New York Times, Wired, and National Geographic. And he joins us to talk about what the clone really means for the future of the species. Brandon, welcome to Colorado Edition. Thank you very much. So cloning an endangered species is a pretty incredible scientific accomplishment. Can you just give us some background on how cloning has gotten to this point? You might remember the very first mammal to be cloned was Dolly, the sheep. And since then, you know, the the technologies have become more consistent and sophisticated. And it is a, a pretty technically powerful achievement. But at the same time, it's kind of, I don't want to say it's it's routine now, because it's not quite that, but it's no longer like this 
crazy science fiction idea. I want to turn to the black-footed ferret specifically. There's obviously a reason why it's nearly extinct in the first place. Researchers, in fact, estimate there are just about 500 left in the wild. Why is that? It's basically habitat loss, the loss of prairie dogs, who are the creatures they have been eating all these millions of years on the North American continent and and disease as well. And, you know, the, the disease angle of it is, is solvable. Scientists have really come a long ways in developing treatments for the, the plague that afflicts black-footed ferrets. But the prairie dog issue and the habitat issue remains huge. It is such a big problem. I think prairie dog populations now are are at about 5% of their historical levels. And, you know, between being exterminated by the livestock industry and by development and suburbanization as well, prairie dogs have, have just been really extirpated from, from just about everywhere there used to be. And, and so long as that is the case, you know, black-footed ferrets are never going to return except in tiny little fragmentary populations. When you first heard that the black-footed ferret had been successfully cloned, what went through your mind? You know, there's sort of two things that came immediately to my mind, right? Like the first the first was just actually wondering what the experience was like for the ferrets involved, you know, so not thinking about it at the species level, but just all right, like what about these animals we're actually talking about? And something that has made people uncomfortable with cloning is also what happens to the surrogate mothers who have the clone implanted in them, bring the baby to term, then have a C-section. The, the baby is removed and this is, this is her life, right? Viagen insists that these animals, these surrogate mothers are treated very well. And, and I don't know, that's not something I've reported out, but it is a question that I had. So that came to mind. But then also, the habitat issue and the prairie dog issue. And I think that that just didn't get enough attention in the coverage of this cloning innovation. And actually, I believe it was in late December, the U.S. Forest Service announced that it was removing protections for prairie dogs on most of the Thunder Basin National Grassland. And Thunder Basin is like one of the last best places in North America where you could have prairie dogs reestablished at a landscape scale and you could have black-footed ferrets actually able to have a viable, sustainable population because they need a lot of prairie dogs, right? And the former head of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service's Black-Footed Ferret Recovery Program just excoriated that decision, right? Like this is such a step back for for black-footed ferret protection and sort of rewilding. And like that didn't get a peep in the national press, right? So we're in this sort of this dynamic where this cloning breakthrough is celebrated as a big step forward for the species, even as what the species needs just continues to be eroded and that does not get nearly enough attention. Well, you're working on a new book that's called Meet the Neighbors and it's about animal personhood and, and what that means for our relationship to wild animals and to nature. So I'm curious how you feel that uh, the concept of animal personhood factors into this intersection with science and, and things like cloning. These are such fun topics to think about. I, I think they're so intellectually uh, juicy. And so for me, I cut my teeth as a science journalist. I just happened to be writing a lot about animal intelligence. And the last 20 years have just been fantastic for new insights into the minds of other animals uh, demonstrated in really empirical, rigorous ways. And 
kind of what became more and more interesting to me over time wasn't necessarily the science, but the question of like, so what do we do with this? How does this change the way we think about other animals and the way we live and the things that we do in the world? More and more people are treating these insights into other animals as thinking, feeling beings who really have a lot in common with us as a reasons for a deeper ethical obligation to them. And I think with, with cloning, it comes back again to what are the experiences of the animals who we clone? And then what are the experiences of their descendants as they go out into the world? Are we just bringing back animals to live in a world where they can thrive? Or are they just going to live hard, desperate lives in environments that really can't sustain them? Brandon Keim is a freelance environmental journalist based in Maine. Thank you so much for joining us. It's my pleasure. Nominations for the 93rd Academy Awards were announced early Monday morning. Among the nominees for Best Picture is Nomadland, which earned a total of six Oscar nominations. The film also won a Golden Globe Award last month for Best Motion Picture and a Best Director nod for Chloe Zhao. For KUNC film critic Howie Mofshevitz, who teaches film and television at CU Denver, Nomadland has a deep-seated grip on the fundamental gaps between American dreams and realities. The guts of Nomadland live in the gaunt, unadorned face of actor Frances McDormand. She plays Fern, a woman stripped down to the basics, widowed after the mine in Nevada closed and her minor husband died. With no roots and little money, Fern heads off into the open American West in her white van. Fern takes temporary jobs in the kitchen at Wall Drugs as a campground host at an enormous Amazon fulfillment center. She joins a world of people shoved out of their houses by a changing country and economy that make their jobs and families disappear. These nomads call themselves houseless. Their homes are vans and campers, but they're without place or firm human connections. The friendships they make as they drive around, sometimes camping in groups, are temporary and tentative. Fern feels deeply for other people. She's a powerful hugger. But the hugs come when people leave, and Fern shows no regret. Yet conversations can take surprising turns into intimacy. As she cuts Swanky's hair, Fern talks about her husband dying. I'd want to put my thumb down on that morphine drip just a little bit longer so I could let him go. Maybe I should have tried harder so he could have gone sooner without all that pain. Well, maybe he wouldn't have wanted that. Maybe he was trying to stay with you as long as he could. I'm sure you took good care of him, Vern. I did. Director Chloe Zhao gets good performances from actors like Swanky with no experience. These actual nomads give nomad land the taste of authenticity, and your heart goes to them. Along with Fern, Nomadland visits astounding scenery, the badlands of South Dakota, the immense basin and range landscape of Nevada, and the huge expanses of western prairie. Zhao films with a sense of wonder at the scale and accents these vast scenes with a highway or a train crossing the width of the screen. Overall, though, Nomadland struggles between its fiction and that authenticity. For all the actuality of nomad actors, the bleak sterility of life at small truck stops and grocery stores, and the ecstatic scenery, the film plays some false romanticized notes. It's hard to believe that nomad life is this idyllic, 
No one gets angry. No one seems crazy. No one shows a gun. There are no fights. Characters are consistently kind and generous. They share. And even if they're blunt, they say please and thank you. Fern's friend Dave, longtime pro actor David Strathern, warns her about walking alone at night, but his caution comes out of nowhere because there's not a threatening moment in the picture. When Dave gets sick, a quick cut to a big medical center shows Dave looking well and happy in a private room after intestinal surgery. No waiting in the emergency room. Maybe he has good health insurance. Characters have support systems. Dave and Fern rely on sisters and brothers. Good for them. They need support, but it doesn't spell complete independence. Yet, as a visual poem about loneliness and about the tumble of conflicts between openness, free roaming, and despair, Nomadland can be extraordinary. Some of our fundamental books, Moby Dick, Huckleberry Finn, or Invisible Man, display the betrayals in actual America. It's amazing that this Chinese immigrant filmmaker understands all that. Zhao was 38. She was born in Beijing and came to the U.S. as a teenager. She has that newcomer's sense of wonder about the American West. Before Nomadland, she filmed Songs My Brother Taught Me on the Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota and made The Rider about an injured rodeo rider. Zhao's not naive. She sees that the grandeur of the American West contains compromises. Nomadland is an itchy film. It makes you scratch at it for a long time. For KUNC, I'm Howie Mopshevitz. That's our show for today. Tomorrow on Colorado Edition, we'll hear how the pandemic, which forced most theaters to shut down, created new opportunities for drive-ins. I'm Henry Zimmerman. And I'm Erin O'Toole. Our production team includes Tess Novotny, Alana Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Thanks for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC.